The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have Your Word, that it is a sufficient Word, that it is a Word that is absolutely true, for it was inerrant in its original giving, its original revelation, its as it was inscripturated and written down, God the Holy Spirit guided the thoughts and the hands of those who wrote. Thus we can say that your word is truly a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, and that it is your word that gives light to our thinking. And it illuminates not only who we are as human beings who are desperately in need of salvation from a perfect Savior, but that you have a plan that extends throughout all of human history and is pointed towards a goal, a time of resolution in the future, and that you have revealed these things to us that we might be strengthened and encouraged in our faith and that we might live today in light of that future, living in light of eternity for the decisions that we make today will impact our eternal position in the coming kingdom. Now, Father, as we study this chapter and begin this future time in Revelation. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that God the Holy Spirit would store them in our souls, and we would be able to recall this in time of application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are many people who go through life and face many different kinds of problems, many different types of adversity. Sometimes they are faced again and again with personal injustices. Beyond that, as we watch the evening news, we are acquainted with vast amounts of injustice, suffering, war, famine, disease throughout the world. Often people question, wonder, how can God allow all of these things to take place? Is there no justice in God? It appears that the unjust and the unrighteous seem to go on and on without any justice, without any retribution. Uh, Where is God? This idea was often reflected by the psalmist in the Psalms where he said, O Lord, how long, how long will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Revelation gives us God's final answer on that question, and we enter into that this morning and the answer to that question in our study in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
What we see in this last section of Revelation as we have studied is that God reveals to the Apostle John and through the Apostle John to us the things that will take place after these things. Revelation 4.1, we read, After these things, that is, after the events of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the events that describe the trends of the church age, those seven ecclesiastical evaluation reports to the seven congregations of Revelation 2 and 3, John says, after these things, after that period, there is a pause, and then he says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So this introduces us to the next section of the book, which extends from chapter 4 through the end of the book of Revelation. Here we see the beginning of God's revelation to John of the final judgments in human history. And that these final judgments are written on a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And it can only be opened by one who is uniquely qualified. The opening of the scroll brings with it the final series of judgments on human history and on planet Earth. Judgments which will end up destroying the usurper Satan and establishing Jesus Christ as the rightful ruler and king on planet Earth. In chapters 4 and 5, we see the presentation of that scroll. Chapter 4 presents us the scene in heaven. I think it's important for us to understand that as we come to the end of human history, and as God reveals it to us, He doesn't start with human events. He doesn't start with what's happening within human history. He starts with God. He starts with this vision of God upon His throne in heaven. It is a picture of the supreme judge of all the earth sitting upon His judicial throne about to enact His justice on human history and planet earth. So chapter 4 pictures for us that throne and what is going on around the throne. And it is a picture that is designed to focus our attention upon the majesty, the holiness, and the righteousness of God as the ultimate judge of all the earth. Chapter 5 then focuses on this scroll that appears. It's not mentioned until chapter 5, verse 1. And then the question comes, who is qualified to open the scroll, who is qualified to break the seals. And there is a desire to have one who, only one who is uniquely qualified to break the seals. And, of course, that focuses our attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ for only the Lamb of God who has purchased us, who has paid the redemption price, is qualified to be the judge, to be the one to bring that judgment into human history and to judge, bring final judgment on the human race to establish his kingdom. So in chapter 4 we see the presentation of the throne of God and in chapter 5 the presentation of the one who is qualified to open the scroll. As we get into chapter 4, verse 1, we see John is brought into heaven through some form of vision or prophetic 
transformation. He is brought into the very throne room of God, into the uh, heaven of heavens. And there he sees and describes for us what is going on in the heavenlies during the end times. This period that we're coming into is a period that is first described back in Revelation 1.19 where the Lord Jesus Christ, who appears in the garb of the righteous judge, commissions John to write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are chapters 2 and 3, the present church age, and the things that will take place after this. This is our timing reference to help us understand when the events of chapter 4 and following take place. These are the things that will take place later on. In order to orient you, we have a map of prophetic events, this prophetic panorama. We've gone through this several times. I've modified it slightly today in light of current study. We are presently living in the church age. In the church age, there are two types of people on the earth. There are those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have put their faith alone in Christ alone, and the instant they do so, they have eternal life. And when they die, they are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord in an interim body. But those who do not trust Christ as Savior are sent to a place called Hades or torments, and it is a holding place until final judgment comes. It's sort of a, uh, a holding pen, an uh, interim place of jail until they get to go to eternal prison. The church age ends when Jesus Christ returns in the air for His bride, the church. All church age believers, carnal, spiritual, living, dead, are united with their resurrection bodies, and in the twinkling of an eye, they are uh, resurrected to the dead are resurrected, the, the, the living are transformed and taken to be with the Lord in the air at the rapture. Sometimes subsequent to the rapture, there will be a period on the earth known as the tribulation, the time of Daniel's 70th week, otherwise referred to in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the tribulation period. It begins sometimes subsequent to the rapture of the church, it begins with the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist, the prince who is to come in Daniel chapter 9, and the nation Israel. Sometime in this intervening period, there is the judgment seat of Christ that takes place. Uh, typically, I have put that at taking place uh, at the same time as the tribulation, but as we get into our exegesis, especially chapter 5, what we'll discover is that at the very beginning here in chapter 4, we're introduced to this group of people known as the 24 elders, and we will see that these 24 elders are the resurrected, raptured, church-age believers. They have Stephanos crowns, which indicates they've already been rewarded. There's also some technical aspects related to exegesis in Revelation 5, 9, and 10 that indicate that they are already the resurrected, raptured, and rewarded church-age believers. Therefore, at the very beginning, we have church-age believers who are have already gone through the judgment seat of Christ. Now, some people have said, how in the world can all the church been rewarded already? Well, because they're living in a timeless environment after the rapture. They're in a timeless environment of heaven, and they are not in the time-bound environment of earth. So what will take place in perhaps a day of earth time may encompass 
a thousand years. Remember that verse in First Peter that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So no matter how long it might take in terms of heavenly time for the judgment seat of Christ to transpire, it will be completed in just a short amount of earth time. We don't know how long the period is between the church age and the tribulation, how long that transition is, but the tribulation will begin subsequent to the rapture. At the end of the tribulation period, there is the marriage of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, the present church age, and the marriage of the Lamb, and then the second advent when the Lord returns uh, to the earth at the second coming. This culminates in another judgment, a judgment of the tribulation uh, believers and the tribulation unbelievers, and this inaugurates and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, which the uh, early church fathers referred, referred to as the as the chiliasm, uh, were referred to as chilias because they believed in a thousand year reign of Christ based on the based on the Greek word for one thousand. This ends with another judgment, the great white throne judgment, and then the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and a new heavens and new earth are established. And after the great white throne judgment, all unbelievers are consigned to the lake of fire, along with all fallen angels, Satan, Lucifer, etc. So that gives us that prophetic overview, that panorama, so that as we go through this period of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 4 through 19, chapters 4 through 19, you can put that together and see where we are based on this map. Now we talked about the rapture and spent some time, about eight or nine lessons, going through the doctrine of the rapture here about four months ago. I'm not going to repeat that, but I want to just summarize a couple of things. The doctrine of the rapture is based partially on the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return. The imminency of Christ's returns means that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. The term imminent means... Uh, that it is hanging overhead. It is constantly ready to befall or overtake one. It's something that is close at hand in its incident. So the return of Jesus Christ can be at any time because there is nothing that must take place before it. No signs precede the rapture. So sometimes we'll see people, oh, we see the signs of the times. No, we don't. In fact, it was a little bit uh, ironic that last week at the pre-trib rapture, a study group, they had somebody come in and do a special song at the banquet on Monday night, and he's and right in the middle of the chorus it says, and we see the signs of his coming. No, we don't see the signs of, uh, take, it's the signs of the times, rather. We don't see the, the, those signs related to the rapture at all, which is what that guy sang, and nobody there agreed with that, but you know how music is. People don't think about it anymore. So, there's no signs that precede the rapture. No prophecy must be fulfilled before the rapture. Now, there may be some things that take place today that relate to setting the stage for what comes after the rapture. And I believe that's what we see going on in many ways today is God is moving the nations around and pulling together the uh, assignment of various alliances and various things that will take place in order to set that stage for what happens subsequent to the rapture. But that is not prophetic fulfillment in the sense that we can look at it and say, ah, rapture is going to happen next week, next month, or within the next 30 or 40 years. We can't say that. We only say that, that it appears it may be a little 
uh, more imminent than it was 100 years ago. But it still may not be for another 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. I think it will be closer than that, but that's only, a, that's only an opinion. No one knows the time or the hour when our Lord will return for the church, yet it could happen at any moment. So no signs precede the rapture. No prophecy must be fulfilled before the rapture. The rapture can occur at any moment. Now, that means that it is certain it will occur, but it is uncertain when it will occur. It's not contingent on any other events. And no prophesied event intervenes between the present time and the future time of the rapture. So it's very important to understand that we're not looking for anything. We're looking for the return of Christ for the church. The definition of rapture of the rapture is that this refers to the resurrection of all dead church age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. Jesus Christ will return in the clouds. First Thessalonians chapter 4, which we'll look at in a second. He returns in the clouds, and uh, those who are dead are resurrected and given their resurrection bodies, and just a half second or momentary second later, nanosecond later, all living believers are also resurrected. For our scriptures, we look at primarily 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Three sounds, a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That word caught up together translates the Greek word harpazo, which was translated into the Latin uh, vulgate with the verb rapto, which is where we get our word rapture. So rapture is indeed a biblical word. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Another key verse for the rapture in this last week, we attended the uh, pre-tribulation rapture study group, and there were several people here from the congregation who went. Bruce went and hauled all of our audio and video equipment with him up there and, and uh, in order to provide DVDs for the pre-trib rapture study group and for uh, them to distribute. And we heard a number of uh, presentations by various speakers. This year the theme was on postmodernism and its impact on prophecy studies. And I'll just tell you some of the uh, topics that were covered. David Noble, who's the head of Summit Ministries, and if you get a chance to uh, go to summit.org, you can read many of their papers, many of their presentations. They have a tremendous amount of uh, videos, uh, DVDs, as well as audios and other material available on understanding worldview and understanding Marxism, understanding modernism, creation, evolution, ethics, postmodernism. They run a camp during the summer. I've always wanted to try to either go to their adult training in the spring. It always conflicts with our Chafer Conference, so that's a problem. But they run a camp during the summer. It's a worldview training camp for high school, juniors, seniors, uh, freshmen in college to go to, and they train these kids to think in terms of worldview. It's not just a camp to go and play. They are in class all day. They bring in some of the top 
Christian experts throughout, uh, the, throughout the country to teach them on economics and philosophy and the scriptures and ethics and to teach on, on law, uh, worldview, capitalism, socialism. David Noble uh, was one of the first men heading up the anti-communist crusade back in the 50s and 60s, and he's been devoting his life to a study of these issues for years. And every parent that I've known who sent their kids off to the summit for two or three weeks just is overly impressed with what comes back. And they have a number of curriculum that's available for homeschoolers, so that's something you could check out if you're interested in that. But he talked about what is postmodernism and gave an excellent presentation. He had managed to get through uh, 12 of 56 pages in his paper. Um, then Bob Thomas, Dr. Robert L. Thomas, I always like the first part of his name. Uh, Dr. Robert L. Thomas, who's been a professor of Greek at, uh, uh, used to be ta- further, uh, originally Talbot and now at the Master's Seminary, talked about the impact of postmodern interpretation on Bible prophecy. Dr. Ryrie, some of you know him because he uh, put together the Ryrie Study Bible, and I know him because he's a personal friend, and he was the head of the uh, he was the dean of the graduate program at Dallas Seminary when I was a student, the head of the Old Testament department, I mean, excuse me, the head of the systematic theology department, and I had many wonderful conversations with him over the years. He talked about how you can obscure the truth of dispensationalism, sort of a reverse angle there, which was interesting. Uh, Roger Oakland spoke on the emerging church movement in Bible prophecy. Uh, Wayne House, who we went with to Israel last summer, talked about the openness of God theology and Bible prophecy. One of the most interesting papers was the one that uh, Dr. Bob Wilkin, the head of Grace Evangelical Society, gave on postmodernism and its impact upon theological education. And he named names and gave quotes from key people in numerous seminaries and Bible colleges showing how postmodernism has impacted their thinking so that there's numerous places you would not suspect where there are faculty members who believe you just can't really know, you can't be sure of anything. That was an excellent uh, presentation. Tuesday night we had a a speaker, uh, Waleed Shubat, who was a uh, former convicted Palestinian terrorist, now a believer, and he'll be speaking here also at the Fall Prophecy Conference, or excuse me, Fall Bible Conference. I'm really confused today. Spring Chafer Seminary Conference in March. And then there were a couple of other excellent papers, including one by George Gunn, who's a professor of Greek at, I believe it's uh, uh, up in Northern California. What was the name of that? Um, my name escapes me right now, but he's he teaches Greek at a, at a Bible college, uh, Shasta Bible College, up in Northern California, and he gave an excellent paper on John 14. That John 14, 1 through 3 is a strong rapture passage. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, in my Father's house. And that indicates the in, place in heaven are many dwelling places. These are temporary places of abode where you would go and stay for a while before you go somewhere else. And, of course, as the church will go to heaven for a temporary time, and then we will come to earth. So I think that this is something like a motel in heaven. We'll go to our dwelling places and uh, for a temporary time. 
And I know the old King James translated it mansions, but see, this isn't a permanent abode for us. This is a temporary dwelling place. And Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. Not to just go up and bounce back down to earth, but our destiny is this temporary dwelling place for a period of time. That indicates that it must occur prior to the tribulation. John 14.3 goes on to say, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So that is a strong passage. 1 Corinthians 15.51 talks about what takes place at that time. Paul says, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's that transformation, exchanging this mortal body for immortality, this corruptible body for incorruptibility. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then finally, uh, we look for the coming of Christ. We do not look for the coming of Antichrist. There is no, nothing that precedes the appearance of Christ. Titus 2.13, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Nothing intervenes between now and the appearance of our Savior at the rapture. Not the Antichrist, not the Ten Kingdoms, nothing that occurs in the tribulation that is spoken of as a sign occurs prior to. We're not looking for something else as a sign of His coming. We are looking for His coming. Then we have studied in the past many times the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27. There, there's the perfect prediction of the coming of Messiah the Prince some 69 weeks after the beginning of the, of the uh, prophecy, which focused on a decree to restore the Jews to Jerusalem and its fortifications. That occurred in 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes decreed and instructed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and to complete the building of the walls and the fortification. Some 173,880 days later, according to the prophecy, Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem, offering himself as the Messiah, the Messianic King, uh, the Jews met him outside. We refer to it as Palm Sunday when they sang Hosanna, praise to the Messiah. And yet, merely three or four days later, they crucified him on the cross. So that part of the prophecy was fulfilled literally. Then the prophecy says, after this, so there's a pause of time. It's turned out to be 2,000 years. It's after the destruction of the second temple. Sometime much later, still future for us, there is the coming prince, the seven years of the tribulation period, three and a half years in the first half, three and a half years in the second half, divided by the abomination of desolation referred to in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, and then the Messiah will return. These are designated for Israel. Since the church is on the earth today, in order for God to shift his focus back to Israel, the church must be Removed. So that is another reason the rapture must take place before the tribulation. Now, as we look at what is happening here in chapter 1, 
of, of um, chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation, we read, After these things, John said, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And this is often understood to be sort of a symbol of what happens at the rapture, is that the church is taken to heaven as John is taken to heaven. And then he sees these events. He hears a voice like a trumpet, similar to the trumpet and the shout that occurs at the rapture. And he, he hears a voice saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after these things. And then in verse 2 he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. Now, because of the construction here, the normal use of in plus the dative here in the Greek, which does, usually means by means of the Spirit, doesn't mean that here. Because it's conjoined with this, with the to be verb, it means it's the idea of location. He was in the Spirit, and it's the same phrase that's used back in Revelation chapter 1 when he talks about being in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos. It's not the filling by means of the Spirit the church age believers experience. This is a revelatory state. This is a state where God is revealing uh, Himself, revealing information to John as an apostle. And so it is a position, a situation where God opens up the mind of John so that he can see the events that are going, going on in heaven and on earth, or perhaps he is even taken to heaven. The scripture is not clear as to what happens, but it is clear that he is being given direct revelation by means of God the Holy Spirit. So he says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one that sat on the throne. Now let's just stop and think about this a minute. This is a picture of a majestic throne in heaven. This, the whole imagery that we see throughout Revelation 4 and 5, and also whenever the throne of God is mentioned throughout the book of Revelation, the emphasis is on God the Father, not the Son. The Son is not on a throne right now other than the Father's. He's not sitting on His throne. Remember, we are studying Revelation 3.21. The Son is on the Father's throne. The Father's throne is the throne of judgment in Revelation. It is the throne where he enacts his judicial decrees and brings justice to a culmination. So as we look at Revelation 4 and as we come to this end time, the way, it is, the way that God designs our focus is not on what's going on earth primarily, but that what will happen on earth is the outworking of God's justice coming from the supreme court of heaven as God is now finally bringing together in human history, a judgment of evil and injustice and sin. And that's what the book of Revelation describes. And as I said in my introduction, there are, there are numerous people who have problems with the whole idea of evil. They, they stumble over this, and, and sometimes we stumble over it as Christians because we go through situations where somebody betrays us or we're abused or we lose a job or we lose a loved one or we go through a, a war and we lose a limb or we just see all of the horrible suffering or, we, or we're aware of suffering that occurs in history and we wonder how in the world can a loving, just God allow all of this horror, allow all of this evil, allow all of this suffering to take place. And many people become entrapped by this particular question. And it's particularly true if you are ever involved in witnessing or evangelizing uh, uh, Jewish people 
often they stumble over the Holocaust. How in the world can we believe in a, in a God who loves us, that cares about us as a Jewish people, and allowed us to go through this horrible, horrible Holocaust where six million Jews were killed because of the evil of the uh, Third Reich. And so we have to be able to address this particular question, not only in our own soul, but also in terms of other people, especially unbelievers, who may uh, address this particular question. Let's try to focus it a little bit. Often the question is asked, how can a loving God allow war or suffering, and child abuse, the death of innocence is often difficult for people to handle. How can God allow famine and horror to go on in history? How can a loving God allow events like the Holocaust or events such as uh, Joseph Stalin's mass murder of over 30 million uh, Russians during his uh, reign over the Soviet uh, Empire? Whenever we ask this question, we have to stop and we have to think through the character of God. And that's what Revelation does, is it starts with God's character. This is what is emphasized when we look at Him upon His throne in Revelation chapter 4. Our attention starts with the character of God, who He is, before we look at what He is going to do. Now, the underlying question, as you'll you'll hear it articulated perhaps in a philosophy book or in a uh, a philosophy class or reading in some literature, is if God is truly a loving God and absolute good, how can he allow evil? How can God allow evil? If Sometimes the question is put, if the Christian God is omnipotent, just, and loving, and evil exists, either God is loving, but he is neither just nor powerful enough to stop it, or he is powerful enough to stop it, but he's not loving or just. See, that's the horns of the dilemma that are presented by the way this question is often posed. And sometimes when you get involved in witnessing to people, they'll raise this question, well, how can you believe that God's so loving and just when you see all this injustice in the world? Why didn't God stop it? And how do you handle that? How do you answer that? You may even get a point in your life where you have to face this because of some personal crisis or suffering or injustice that you experience. So let's stop and just think about this a little bit because this whole doctrine underlies much of Revelation. It is God finally bringing to completion His judgment of evil in human history. He has allowed it to exist and to go on seemingly unrestrained, but we know it hasn't been because the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.2, is a restrainer of evil. It just appears that it's been unrestrained for thousands of years. And so, often when we come to this, Christians get flustered. You know, you're talking to somebody, you're talking to your neighbor, your cousin, or somebody, and they say, well, how can you believe in this loving God when all... Uh, You look at what's going on in Iraq. You look at what happened in 9-11. You look at what's going on in the Sudan. You look at all this evil. And you sit there and you say, well, you know, I heard the answer at church, but I don't really know what to do now. We get all bum-fuzzled and we don't know. Well, that's a technical theological term. We get all bum-fuzzled and we don't really know exactly how to answer the question. But what we need to do is just relax 
and and think. So often when we hit things we're not sure of, we get we get caught up with emotion. We don't think. So we need to relax and think, and we need to explain to the person that we're talking to that the answer is clear. We need to discern whether they're just throwing up some smoke screen or not, because there's often a lot of folks who come along, and they heard somebody say this before, and it stops somebody from talking about God, so they're just quoting it. They don't want to talk. They're not interested. They're not concerned about the problem, but they just want to get you to shut up. And so you don't want to throw your pearls before swine, because they don't want to think through the answers at all. And so just you just have to have the discernment when to answer and when not to answer. And if you're going to answer, you need to take your time. Don't just jump into answering the question right away. See, many of us are so proud of what we know, and I include myself in that group. I can answer that question. Let me just run right in there and give you the benefit of my knowledge. And we have to sort of prepare the soil before we start dumping the seed. So... We might stop and ask a few questions for clarification. If somebody asks this question, well, how can you believe in, a, in any kind of loving God with all this injustice in the world? Just stop a minute and say, well, what do you mean by injustice? I mean, obviously, you've got, already got a concept of right and wrong because you use the word injustice. Where did you get that? You know, try to understand what their framework is. What are they talking about? They may, uh, they may have a lot of problems in, in their own thinking, and you just need to point that up. So stop and, and probe a little bit and say, well, what do you mean by, by fair or just? Uh, probe a little bit. Ha- ask them um, what they mean. Usually every time somebody raises the question about uh, evil and the existence of evil, they're really saying, how do you, can you believe that God is just or God is fair or God is right? And so you need to ask them, well, what do you mean by right? What do you mean by just? Where do you get your concept of justice? Help me understand what you're really trying to say. And the, the, what we're getting at here is that so often what we do is we're trying to impose our own limited, finite, creaturely concept of justice on God. We want Him to conform to our standards rather than understanding what His standards are. And therein lies a major problem. Furthermore, we should uh, stop and ask them how they solve the problem. Okay, say, well, wait a minute, I, I, I have an answer that as, as a Christian, I understand what the Bible says about why there is justice and evil and, and suffering in the world. But before we get to that, help me just understand your view, how you solve that problem, because they just challenged us and said, how can you explain evil in the world? Well, wait a minute. Before we get my answer, I want to know how you do it. Because this is really interesting. There's only three possible answers to the question of the existence of evil in the world. The first answer is that evil is random, it's normal, and it's uncontrolled. That evil is random, normal, and uncontrolled, and there's no God. So all of history is just by chance. This is the position that comes out of evolutionary thought, Secular humanism, postmodernism, all these systems uh, buy into some form of Darwinism. There's really no God out there uh, in atheism. And we just have these, these events, this suffering on earth. It's all just random and uncontrolled. Ah, really? Really? So you believe in, in evolution. You believe that there's no God guiding the process. It's all just happening time plus chance, and it just keeps going, right? Right. Okay, well, let's think about that a little bit. If you're going to... Expect a good answer from me on evil. Let's see what you have to say. So 
So you believe in Darwinism, in the survival of the fittest, right? Right. Okay, well, how do you get survival? Well, there's got to be the threat of death and extinction and suffering to get survival. You've got to survive something. So obviously, from the very beginning, you've got evil, suffering, and death as part of your system, right? Right. It's just normal and natural. See, in Darwinism, they can't call it evil because without it, there's no evolution, they can't call it suffering and death. They can't call suffering and death evil because without suffering and death, there's no survival of the fittest. Without the survival of the fittest, there's no progression. Without progression, there's no evolution. So for them, suffering and death and struggle is necessary and normal for the process. They can't call it evil within their system. So they don't have a right to make moral judgments of evil or injustice or justice because they're borrowing that from me. But they don't have a moral basis. So now they've got a problem. See, I haven't even had to deal with the issue yet. I'm just trying to hang them on the horns of their dilemma. Okay, the second position that you have is that evil really doesn't exist. Now, not a whole lot of people uh, hold this position today, but there are people down through history who have held this position. That was part of part of Platonism. It was part of Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy's position in, in Christian science, that it's all a matter of the mind. Ultimate reality is out here in the realm of the ideal. And what we experience on earth, well, that's not really real. That's just sort of a figment of your mind. So you have to learn certain mind control techniques in order to overcome that. And that played itself out in the ancient world in Gnosticism and the modern world in elements of the New Age movement and mind uh, science cults and, and various derivatives of that. And then the Christian position is that evil exists, but it's not normal, it's not random, and it's not uncontrolled. That there is a higher good, that God is allowing evil to exist for a long period of time in order to accomplish his ends. And from this we see that, number one, that evil either originated from God, with God or his creatures, one or the other. Scripture teaches that it originated with his creatures. He created the angels first, and then man, he gave them a free will or volition, and first Lucifer, known as Halel ben Shahar in Isaiah chapter 14, or Lucifer is the one who first chose to disobey God, bringing sin and evil into the angelic realm. And then in, the, in humanity, it was Adam's decision to disobey God, bringing sin into the human race. So evil came into creation, according to Christianity, through the abuse of freedom and responsibility. Therefore, it's not normal. It's abnormal. Third, the unintended consequence of that disobedience brought about all of this evil and suffering. Satan really wanted to do good. He just wanted to be like God. But it brought all kinds of calamity. Adam just wanted to be like God. He wanted to eat that fruit so he'd be like God. That's what the serpent told him. And so all this other uh, death and disease and suffering, everything is the unintended consequence of that disobedience. Now, fourth, God allows evil and suffering to go on as long as he allows his creatures to exercise free will and to choose sin. As long, in other words, to stop sin and evil, God's got to stop free will, stop human responsibility, shut it all down. So as long as God continues to give his creatures the freedom to be disobedient, 
there will be evil and injustice and suffering in human history. However, what the Bible teaches is that they don't get away scot-free. You may not see the justice, the retribution in time, but it will be judged. It began at the cross. It began when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sins known as redemption. That's what Scripture teaches. First John, back up. First John 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received from the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Notice that. It is that redemption price paid for by the death of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. That paid the penalty for sin. That is the beginning of the resolution of the evil problem. First, the penalty had to be paid. The price had to be paid. Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross. So there's a problem related to, 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 to man's, to the penalty for sin and man's reception of grace and that penalty is paid so that he can then receive grace. The second issue is the resolution of God's character because as a just God, God has to have the penalty paid. And this happened on the cross also, 1 John 2.2. 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation relates to the satisfaction of divine justice. So on the one hand, in his manward direction, God pays the, uh, Christ paid the penalty for sins. And in the Godward direction, the justice of God is satisfied by the payment of the Lamb. Romans 3.24 says that we've been justified freely by His grace through the redemption, the payment of that penalty, that's in Christ Jesus. And it was Christ Jesus who God set forth as a what? As a propitiation by His blood, by His death on the cross through faith to demonstrate His Righteousness. See, we get back to this issue of justice of God, His righteousness. And what the, what the Bible is portraying here is that for God to enact His justice and ultimately defeat and judge sin and evil, it started at the cross where God demonstrated His righteousness. His justice and righteousness are satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross. It is the redemption price of the death of the Lamb that pays the price The Lamb had to come as a human being in order to be a creature who would pass the same test that the creature Lucifer failed and the creature Adam failed. He would then be able to die for the whole human race because he was incarnate as a human being and therefore that would qualify him to go to the cross. At the cross he would pay the redemption price, satisfy the justice of God, And then God would ultimately bring him back to the earth now that he's qualified as the one who would bring final judgment and justice on this whole evil situation. And that's the setup for Revelation 4 and 5. Because we're in the throne of God, we're before the bar of the Supreme Court of Heaven, and we're going to see His righteousness and His justice on display. And there's no one in in all of creation qualified to open the seal and to end the problem of sin, injustice, suffering, and evil other than the Lamb of God who is qualified because He has redeemed us by His death. That's the setup in Revelation 4. That is why we see the creatures in heaven, the, the angels, the, living, the four living beasts, and the 24 elders bowing down and singing praise to the Lamb 
Because as we'll see in Revelation 5, it is the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because He was slain and has redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And He is going to uh, make us kings and priests to our God that we shall reign on the earth. This is the culmination, the conclusion of the whole problem of sin and evil. See, if you're talking to an unbeliever, they have no resolution to that. Just use that to drive them right to the cross. But you have to be ready. The explanation isn't necessarily short and simple, but it is profound because evil isn't simple. It is complex. So the resolution has to be complex. But the resolution drives us to understand that the love of God is unmeasured. And from His love, He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins that we could have eternal life. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can get this glimpse into the outworking of Your justice in human history, that Your justice and Your righteousness are perfectly compatible with Your love, and that in Your love You sent Your Son, the only begotten Son of God, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation and certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. For Jesus Christ has paid the price. He has paid the sin penalty. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. And everyone here has the opportunity to have that great salvation simply by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've learned today and that we may have a greater understanding of the outworking of your plan and purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing hymn number 125, Joy to the World.